Let's now turn to Isaiah chapter 15. Let's make sure everyone has their Bible open and you're ready for the reading of the Scriptures this morning. A very timely message, a very important message. And perhaps if you've been like me, You've read Isaiah 15 and 16 many, many times. In fact, Isaiah 13 to 21, and you just are trying to figure out and get your head wrapped around why did God put this in the Scriptures and what is its relevance, importance to us. And we'll see that this morning as we study Isaiah chapter 15. Very relevant passage for us this morning. What you notice as I read this morning, Isaiah 15, beginning with verse 1. The burden of Moab, because in the night our of Moab is laid waste. And brought to silence. Because in the night, Kerr of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. He has gone up to Bahith and to Debon, the high places to weep. Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Mediba. On all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets. Everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly. And Heshbon will cry. And Elela will cry. Their voice shall be heard even under Jahaz. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out. His life shall be grievous unto him. My heart shall cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee into Zoar, a heifer of three years old. For by the mounting up of Luhith, with weeping shall they go it up. For in the way of Horonium, they shall raise up a cry of destruction. I call your attention this morning to the very opening phrase in verse 1. That's the title of our message. The burden of Moab. The burden of Moab. Father, this morning, there are many burdens that our church family's carrying. And right now, I pray for Rose, Elissa, Neri, the husbands, the sons, the grandchildren. A lot of family members, Lord. Thank you through the ministry of this church. <coughs> Mrs. Magadia heard the gospel. And in her 80s, with an open, tender heart, called on the Lord Jesus Christ to be her Savior. I thank you this was her church. I thank you that I had the privilege of being her pastor and baptizing her with her family. We pray for the family that God is their grieving. It's a bittersweet moment. They know she's with you. They know that, Lord, she has received her inheritance in heaven, an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, and the fadeth not away. And knowing that dying is gain, but still, Lord, the human side of us, we miss her presence her loveliness, her happiness, her encouragement. She was a matriarch to the family, and she'll be greatly missed. That family has a burden. I pray, God, that you would show yourself strong for them and give them comfort. Our church family has burdens. Some are going through cancer treatments. 
Some have surgeries that, are, that will be planned out in these next few weeks. Others have loved ones suffering. Some have lost their jobs. Many are out of work because of the shelter-in-place order. And there's so many other things, Lord. I think of just the burden shared with me yesterday. God, tonight, this morning, we pray that, God, you'd show yourself strong. You said in Isaiah 50, you said in Psalm 55, cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. You told us in 1 Peter chapter 5, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God, as the service begins, we pray that every burden be cast on the Lord. And there's some of us here that don't even have any burdens, but tomorrow we might. And we're praying, God, that you give us an understanding and breakthrough about this burden that a nation has. America has a burden. California has a burden. This world is under the burden of COVID-19 and more importantly, the burden of sin. And God, I pray that our eyes would be turned upon the Lord and we see the merciful hand of God. And Lord, where there's darkness, we pray that we'd see light. And Lord, where we think that everything just seems to be coming apart, help us to see the silver lining that you have in it. And thank you this morning that you give us the promise that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And this morning we pray that God, that your word would be perfect, converting the soul. We pray your statutes would be right, rejoicing the heart. We pray, God, thy testimonies would be sure, making wise the simple. We pray thy commandments would be pure, enlightening the eyes. We pray that the fear of the Lord would be clean, enduring forever. We pray of the Lord that the judgments of the Lord be true and righteous altogether. The Bible says, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. We pray, Lord, for sanctifying your people through the truth of your word, the washing of water by the word. We pray, God, today that the incorruptible seed of your word would find its place in hearts. We pray for purifying that would lead to the new birth process and people being born again. We pray that, God, the seed of your word would find a lodging place in softened hearts and teachable hearts and would result in much fruit, 25, 50, and 100 fold. We pray, God, today that your word would be a sharp two-edged sword, piercing and dividing the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrows. We pray, God, that your word would be a fire burning in our bones. We pray it would be a rock, a hammer that would break the rockiness of our hearts. May, God, you come down right now as the doctor of our soul. And, God, may you just apply the salve of Gilead upon us, Lord, today. And I pray, God, today that you would, would touch our souls and work in our hearts. And, God, I pray that you do something great and mighty. And when we leave, we can say, what a great God that we have. Bless the service now, we pray. Come down upon the many, many people watching today. May you be glorified and honored, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah chapter 13 to 21 is what we call the prophecy of God's judgment against the nations. Several nations are mentioned. Babylon, Moab, Syria, and specifically Damascus, its capital, Ethiopia, Egypt, Babylon, again in chapter 21, Edom, Arabia. And we see these nations, which are all Gentile nations, the judgment of God, a future prophecy concerning God's judgment of the nations. 
As we study the Bible, we recognize that nations figure very prominently in Scripture. God thinks about nations. Because I remind you, every nation started with an individual. And individuals became a people. And peoples, people turned into nations. And these are nations of people. The Bible tells us in Psalms chapter 9, verse 7, The wicked shall be turned unto hell, and the nations that forget God. These are nations that forgot God. These are nations who had an opportunity to turn towards God. They had the testimony of Israel around them and Judah around them, but they rejected God. They rejected his mercies. And yet in spite of that, we see God reaching out to them. As we read each of these chapters, uh, we are quick to realize that it's a message of vengeance and judgment of God upon these people. And we realize it was vengeance because each of these nations uh, they were adversarial to Israel. They were adversarial to Judah. There are different times in Israel's history, in Judah's history, where these nations attacked them. Babylon specifically, as we saw in chapters 13 and 14. Babylon attacked them. Assyria attacked them. We see mentioned over and over again the scriptures of God representing his people. And it's a reminder to us of a principle that we cannot fight against God, but we must let God fight for us. In Proverbs chapter 21 Verses 30 and 31, listen to this. There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. But the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. That's a great reminder to us. We might prepare our horse for battle. We might prepare for a famine. We might be prepared for a long delay. We're preparing right now for, the, if by chance the shelter-in-place orders become more severe and, and, and elongated much more. But the Bible reminds us that safety is of the Lord. We're reminded today that if anyone tries to fight with God, they will not win. Listen to what the, the Jewish leaders recognized. Gamaliel told them this in Acts chapter 5. He says, And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work of men this, if this count, for if this counsel or this work of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. Some of us this morning might be in a place where we're frustrated, we're anxious, we're agitated by this COVID-19 situation. We're living with the grip of fear, with a spreading crisis. When we think about the enormous numbers, this week the United States of America surpassed 100,000 confirmed cases. As of yesterday, 115,000 confirmed cases. I don't know about you, but that is a mind-staggering number. They're concerned about hot zones blowing up beyond New York and Newark, New Jersey. They're concerned about hot zones in Chicago, Detroit, Atlanta, Miami, and even right now New Orleans because they had the Mardi Gras there. And again, everyone's pointing fingers and blaming, and there's probably some of that that probably should be done. But I want to say to you right now, we have to recognize right now, this country has a burden. Our nation has a burden. Alameda County and the surrounding counties counties are under a great burden. I like to be able to look at the news and to know that they're not adding more confirmed cases. I like to be able to look at the news and know that no one else is dying from COVID-19. I like to be able to look at the news and know that the curve is not only being flattened, but we've done away with this disease. I think we all feel like that. But the truth of the matter is, man born of women, his days are few and his troubles are many. And I'm reminded today as we look at this passage of scripture, we start off at Isaiah 15.1 with a, with a statement the burden of Moab. The word burden describes a heavy load one is carrying. 
burdens your problem, your trial, your affliction. A burden so heavy, you bow under the weight of it. A burden so heavy, its load even crushes some. A burden is such that we have sleepless nights. A burden is such we lose our appetite. We weep for days. And the burden of Moab this morning was a heaviness this country felt because of judgment. Because God was trying to get their attention. This morning I want us to see the implications, the personal implications about the burden of Moab. If you're following your outline, if you haven't done so, click on the tab on that page that you're watching and you'll be able to pull down the sermon notes. Please watch that with us because I want you to learn something this morning. Number one, I want you to see the source of Moab's burden. The source of Moab's burden. Now we need to start out for some who are just learning the Bible or perhaps have never gone into the study of this, but we have to ask the question, who is Moab? Why did God put Isaiah 15 and 16 here in the scriptures concerning the, the burden of Moab? And we need to start out by looking at who is Moab? I want you to notice in this, the source of the burden, let's start first of all, letter A, with the start of the burden, or the start of Moab, the start of Moab. Now, who is Moab? Well, we, we find, in, interestingly, that as we go backwards in the Scripture, this will make it very colorful and li li lively for you, but uh, the, the nation of Moab started with an individual named Moab. Moab, sadly to say, was the illegitimate son of an incestuous relationship that we read about in Genesis 19. He was an illegitimate son of an incestuous relationship. He was one of two sons born out of this relationship that was very, very awkward. The father, in this case, happened to be a believer, but it was a very, very awkward, very bad situation. It's a picture of this, just the depravity of man there. Yet this, this, uh, this, young, this young boy, Moab, uh, became a young man, and as a young man, eventually became a people and became a nation. The next time we read about, about Moab, we find it over in the book of Numbers. And we find that the nation, now that this young man Moab has become a nation, and Moab, the actual start of this nation, had died, and it had become a great nation. And there was a king over Moab. That king, his name was, was Balak. If you look at a Bible map, Moab, as you'll find, is on the east of the Dead Sea. And it's just north of Edom and just right, right south of Reuben, where the, where the nation Reuben settled. So if you look at a Bible map, you'll see that Moab was dressed right there on that side there. They were in a very mountainous, a very rugged area there. And there was a king by the name of Balak. He saw what God was doing with Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness. He saw how they defeated two kings much greater than him. These kings were named Sihon and Og. They were Canaanite kings or Amoritish kings. And they were, they were the forerunners of the giants of the Philistines. And so Balak was very concerned. He represented the Moabite people, and he tried to hire a Gentile prophet by the name of Balaam. We talked about that about a couple messages ago over in the book of Revelation. He tried to hire this Gentile prophet to curse Israel, but it didn't work. But he wound up using a, a different method, and he wound up defiling the people through, through the, the eating of food offered to idols and, and through uh, immorality there. We find that Moab is mentioned again later on in Judges chapter 3. During the book of Judges, we find that the nation of Israel continually had uh, had 
polluted themselves by, by taking on idol worship into their nation. And because they did not repent of that, God used different nations to try to break in their conscience. And God used the Moabite nation in Judges chapter 3. And at that time, there was a king by the name of Eglon. And Eglon was a mighty king. And he put, he put Israel under severe, severe bondage and oppression. And God raised up a deliverer, a man by the name of Ehud, a very unusual man. The Bible describes and makes very clear that Ehud was a man that was left-handed. It wasn't spiting, saints, anything spiteful against left-handed people. But back in that time, if you were left-handed, you were considered weak. And it was considered the fact that your right hand, if you, that if you couldn't use your right hand, that maybe your right hand was disabled, was a sign of weakness and disfavor. And back in those days, the left-handed people were, were greatly discriminated against. But this man, Ehud, rose up. And many believed that perhaps his, his right arm truly was disabled by some means. But as a left-handed person, he basically took his weakness and let God use it. He, he didn't let it triple him. He didn't let it disable him. He didn't stay um, behind the scenes. He, he, he volunteered on the front lines. And God raised up Ehud to be a great leader in Israel. Then the next mention we have of Moab, and he start, we go over to the book of Ruth. And during the, this is during the time of the judges. And we read about a man by the name of Elimelech. Elimelech's name means, my God is my king. He was married to a woman by the name of Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant. Elimelech and Naomi had a wonderful marriage. They were living in a city called Bethlehem Judah. Bethlehem Judah means the house of praise and bread. The house of praise and bread. And there... God was, was just chastening Israel because of their idolatries, and a famine came in the land. And because that famine was very long in, in its duration, Elimelech heard the news that there was bread down there in Moab. And so he thought, well, there's food down there, and there's jobs down there. And the Bible says that Elimelech went down to Moab. Now, Elimelech was part of the tribe of Judah. And if you go back, go look on your Bible map, Judah was way north of Moab. Judah was way north of even the, where, where the country of Reuben was. And so he had to travel quite a distance to go all the way down to Moab. Listen, he left the place that was called the house of bread and praise to go down to Moab. Moab there is a picture of the world. In fact, most often we see that Moab is a picture of the world. And he left the place where God could take care of him, thinking that Moab would take care of him, and he didn't. Well, he had two sons, and his sons' names were, were Achilleon, and one of them was Kilion and, and, and his two sons that were there. And uh, they, they married Moabite women. And one of the Moabite women that was married was a woman by the name of Ruth. She's known in the Bible as Ruth the Moabitess. Now, when, when, when Elimelech dies and his two sons die, it basically Naomi's left a widow. Her two daughter-in-laws are left widows. And uh, Naomi just realizes that God has been working in her country. She decides to leave Moab. She realizes she made a bad choice in going down to Moab. She makes the decision to go back up, uh, go back up there, but she realizes she doesn't have a husband. Malin and Kilion, her two, two, two sons, have died down there in Moab, and she has these two daughter-in-laws. Orpah decides to stay back, back there in, in Moab, but Ruth decides to journey on. Ruth saw the faith of, of Naomi. She saw what was going on, and she said, I want your God to be my God, she said, I want your people to be my people. She showed great faith in, what, in the faith that Naomi had, and she followed her back in. And basically, Ruth the Moabitess was allowed into Israel. God told, called, God told the, uh, the Israelites back in Deuteronomy that no Moabite should be allowed to enter to the congregation.
congregation of Israel for up to 10 generations. I mean, God was very upset with the Moabites because of, because of some things they were doing and because of their hostility and adversities against, against Israel. And yet this woman, Ruth, was a picture of a woman that came into Israel and God extending grace to her. When we read about Ruth, Ruth is a picture of God's grace. She was a Moabitess. She should not have been allowed into their congregation. And yet God brought her in. And God brought her in by way of marriage to a wonderful man by the name of Boaz. Beautiful love story. If you've never read it, you ought to read Ruth chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. It'll be a blessing to you. But she entered in. And the greatness of the grace of God through that, because of that, eventually we find that through that lineage, that David the king was, came through that lineage. And of course, that Ruth was included in the ancestry and the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ here. Now, when we look at this, all of that, from that point on, we really just see Moab is a nation that is worldly, a nation that is idolatrous, a nation that is adversarial to God, a nation that is continually a thorn in the flesh and adver- adversarial to Israel. We see the start of Moab. But notice something else. We see the sins of Moab. As we realize that the, the chapter 15 of Isaiah speaks about the source of murder, of, 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 we look at the source of Moab's burden, we see that its start... And by the way, let me just say this. Moab had every opportunity to come to God. Moab had a distant relative by the name of Abraham. He could have gone to Abraham. He could have gone to Isaac. He could have gone to Jacob. He could have gone to Joseph. He could have gone to them and got a word from God. He chose not to. He chose to be a wild man. In fact, the very name Moab means destroyer. And as we look at Moab... We see his sins. First of all, Moab is a picture of someone who makes a profession of faith, but never truly repents of his sins and receives Jesus Christ as his Savior. You see, this morning, you could have been born into a Christian family. Your father is a Christian. Your mother is a Christian. They're born again. They know the Lord is their Savior. But being born into a Christian family doesn't mean that you're born into God's family. To be born into God's family, you must repent of your sins and by faith call on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Even though Moab was born to a father who was a believer in Jesus Christ, that young man had to come to the place of repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, and he never did. And he's the picture of someone I call a halfway individual. He's someone who makes a profession of faith but has never received Christ as Savior. I want to say this morning, if you're someone who's a second or third generation believer or second, third generation person, your parents and grandparents were Christian, make sure you know you're saved. Make sure that you have repented of your sins and called on Jesus as your Savior. Moab is also a picture of the world and worldliness, as I said. Moab was a sinfully idolatrous nation. The chief god that the Moabites worshipped was a god by the name of Chemosh. Now, every one of the pagan gods, as you study them, they had their own little twist there. But everyone, generally speaking, they worshipped gods they felt would give them favor for their crops and for their animals and for their livelihood and for their wealth. 
they saw these gods as gods that would help them. So they would worship gods of the, that, would, that would send rain. They would worship God that would send sun. They would worship God that would give uh, uh, growth and good, good, good uh, uh, fertile ground. And so many of these gods and many of these, if not all these pagan, pagan worships that they had, were idolatrous in nature, but they were also immoral in nature. They, they had what they called, they gave a rise to what we call the fertility cult because alongside of their worship, they would have, they would have a lot of immoral practices that go on with that, very, very sensual in what they did there. And so because of that, one of the things that came out of, one of the derivatives that came out of their, their worship of Chemos is that the, the, the Moabites were very, very famous for human sacrifices. They would offer their children to their pagan god to appease their god. Now I don't know about you, but there's something that doesn't sit very well with me about a religion or faith practice that tells you do you need to sacrifice or kill your children to appease a God. And I just want to park there and just tell you today, thank God today we have a God who sent his son to die for you and me. A God who took on human flesh to die for you and me. He became the sacrifice for our sins. Whereas these people sacrificed their children thinking that that pagan God would accept them and give them favor. That never did. But these people were, were just atrocious in the fact they sacrificed their children there. The worship of Chemos eventually infiltrated Israel through one of Solomon's wives. We read about that over in the book of 1 Kings. And through that, it stayed as part of their worship. When you read there in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles there about these high places, the groves, where they had all these idol gods, one of them that they worshiped very prominently was this god Chemosh. And uh, they would go down and, and, and worship uh, Chemosh, and they would offer their children in the fire. And uh, that was not eradicated until many, many years later in 2 Kings chapter 23, when King Josiah did away with the worship of Chemosh. From that, as we look at all that, Moab was continuously looking for opportunities to hinder Israel, to actually to claim their land, because when Reuben came down and took their inheritance, Reuben took some of the land that originally belonged to Moab, and Moab, of course, was very mad because Mount Nebo was part of that whole landscape that was part of what Moab had, and when Reuben got that as part of his possession, they were not very happy about that. And so Moab became an enemy constantly against Israel and Judah and joined with other nations whenever they could to oppress him. When you notice Isaiah chapter 16, turn with me there please for a moment, Isaiah chapter 16 verse 6, read something that was the underlying root of all their sins. In Isaiah chapter 16 verse 6 it says, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Just like Moab, the sin of pride is the root of all our sins. With pride, we want to be independent of God. With pride, we don't want to hear and to hearken to spiritual authority, especially as adults. With pride, we don't like to be told we have sinned. With pride, we are self-righteous. Look at the description God gives of Moab. He is very proud. He is haughty. He's proud and his wrath. Anger, a proud man is a, proud, is a man that has anger problems and wrath problems. An angry and wrathful man, if you would. Pride keeps us from repenting of our sins. Pride keeps us from reconciling with others. Pride is why our marriages fail to resolve conflicts. Pride is why nations have conflicts. Pride is why people don't resolve issues. 
Pride leads us to think we're better than what we really are. Pride leads us to compare ourselves with other people. Pride leads us to be boastful about things. Pride leads us to be contemptuous against all authority. Pride is why we don't have revival. Pride is why we don't pray. Pride is why we get angry and we leave the church. Pride is why some people live with a chip on their shoulder for all their lives. Pride is why people don't get saved. Why does, what does God say further about pride? Well, listen to this. In Proverbs 6, 17, God hates a proud look. Proverbs 16, 5, God calls the proud an abomination. Proverbs 28, 25, God says the proud man stirreth up strife. 1 Peter 5, 5, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. All I'm trying to say this morning as we look at this today, Moab was a nation that was filled with sin. The source of their burden, the reason why judgment would come upon Moab was because of its underlying sins. I wonder this morning if any of our burdens are because of an unconfessed sin. I wonder this morning if any of our burdens are because of pride that has prevailed in our lives. We see the source of Moab's pride, but would you notice, secondly, would you notice in our chapter the suffering of Moab's pride? The suffering of Moab's pride. As we read chapters 15 and 16 of Isaiah, go back there please, we see here that it's, it's a chapter filled with a lot of darkness. Some very, very strong descriptions of suffering. You see, this morning, my friend, every cause will have a consequence. Every sin has a price. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so when we look at the suffering that they incurred, which resulted in their burden, we notice, first of all, the punishment in their suffering. Notice we see that there were wars. God would use the Assyrians and the Babylonians as instruments of punishment against Moab. That's why we read all this in chapter 15, 16. The Assyrians would conquer them, and then Moab would come back up, and then later on the Babylonians would come, and the Babylonians would conquer them. It was because of wars. Notice in chapter 15, verse 4, the suffering through war would be so great, the Bible says, Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab should cry out. Now, soldiers weren't supposed to cry. <coughs> soldiers were supposed to be brave and courageous. Soldiers were to endure punishment and wounds without shedding a tear. But so great would be the punishment during war, the Bible says, that the soldiers of Moab would cry out. In fact, it says, his life shall be grievous unto him. That basically means, I wish I'd never been born. I, I hate my life. I don't want to live. We read later on Isaiah 15, 10, which you notice it says, the waters of Demon shall be full of blood. And he says that, you know, the, the, the blood would flow from bloodshed, from war. The waters of Demon, one of their great streams of river, would be full of blood. And then he said, for I will bring upon, more upon Demon. He says, those who escape the bloodshed and being pierced by a spear or stabbed by a sword or cut to death. He said, lions will come upon him that escape of the Moab and upon the remnant of the lamb. There were wars that was, was, was part of their punishment. But notice the wasting. The Bible uses the term wasting to describe this. Notice verse 1 how it just starts off. In verse 1 it says, the burden of Moab 
Notice this. Because in the night, Ar of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. Because in the night, Ker of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. I want you to think with me for a minute the powerfulness of what that says. In a night's time, a greater nation would invade Moab when they were sleeping, when they were not watching, when they were not vigilant, when they assumed everything was good. And the Bible says so great was the affliction and the onslaught of that nation that came in. They were laid waste in an evening, in a night's time, and their mouths were brought to silence. They were wasted. Wasting talks about famines. Wasting talks about their landscape being devastated. Wasting talks about buildings being burned. We read later on in chapter 15, verse 6. Would you go there, please? The waters of Nimrod shall be made desolate. The hay is withered away. The grass faileth. There's no green thing. Therefore the abundance they have, they have gotten, and that which they have laid up, shall they carry away to the brook of the willows. That was symbolic of speaking about a place of sorrow. In chapter 16, verse 8, we read that the fields of Heshbon, which is in the northernmost part of, of Moab, it says they shall languish. And the vine of Sibma, the heathen have broken down the principal plants. In chapter 16, verse 9, we read that the summer fruits and then for the harvest was fallen. We read in chapter 16, verse 10, treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I mean, when you read this passage, I mean, they're wasted. They're devastated. Let me bring it down to, if this happened right now, what's going on? They're defeated. There's economic failure. Their crops have failed. Their waters have failed. There's food shortage. There's water shortage. There's loss of life, there's famine, there's hunger, the judgment is swift, it's happening very quickly, there's loss of confidence in the leadership, uh, people are trying to escape, they call them fugitives, they're trying to run away. I mean, think with me for all those descriptions. Economic failure, people are scared, people are trying to escape, loss of confidence in leadership, law, uh, food shortage, Supply shortage, all that. Hey, doesn't that sound just like what we're going through right now? Doesn't that sound just like what God is doing on America and God is doing the world? The burden of America, the burden of Alameda County, the burden of California. Doesn't it sound just like that right now? We are in an economic crisis. People can't go to work. We've got, we've got our, 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 our this, this president just signed a law, a $2 trillion package, which sounds big to us. But very small when you spread it across 300 million people in the United States. And actually smaller than that because not everyone's going to get a piece of that, that pie. There's a burden. Parallels COVID-19. What I'm going to tell you right now is not going to be popular. But America... California, Alameda County, San Leandro, and Heritage Baptist Church, we need to wake up. 
God's trying to get everyone's attention. God wants us to realize we've put our trust in the dollar more than Almighty God. We've put our trust more in 401k plans than we do the Word of God. We've put our trust that entertainment is going to be here forever. Listen, entertainment has been shut down. Who would have ever imagined the Disney park shut down? Who would have ever imagined an NBA season being canceled? I'm telling you this morning as we go on and on and on, we're facing a crisis right now of immense magnitude. There's a burden. We see their punishment. Notice we see their pain. Chapter 15, verse 2, says there's weeping. And repeatedly we go through the chapter, it says in verse 2, it says, He has gone up to, to Bahith and to Debon, the high places to weep. They went to places they would normally go to worship. Those are now places they're weeping. Listen, weeping is associated with sorrow. Weeping is associated with a broken heart. Weeping is associated with a heart that just that's out of control. It's just weeping and crying until there's no more tears to cry. And the Bible describes their weeping, that not only were they weeping, they were howling over this. They were crying. It's like a banshee crying. The Bible says, Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Mediba. It says, and all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. And the image or picture behind that is when there was great weeping, men would shave their heads and they would cut their beards. And when they did that, it was a symbol and sign that they were in great seasons of weeping. We read later on that people put on sackcloth. Look at verse 3. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses in their streets, everyone shall howl. Notice this. Weeping abundantly. Listen, there's great pain. The greatest pain is the, great, the, the pain of weeping, the pain of sorrow, the pain of hurt, of knowing that you've been so hurt, you've been so devastated, something's been ripped out of you, something's been taken away. Look at chapter 16, verse 10, please. And the gladness is taken away and the joy out of the plentiful field. And in the vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. And then like many people, would you notice verse 12? They finally went to pray, but their prayer was not heard. And it shall come to pass, verse 12, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place. In other words, they're exasperated. They've been worn out by their trial. They've been worn out. They're, they're at a, when it says they're weary, they were at a place. Listen to me, church. They were at a place where they started to feel the pain. They were at a place where they started to feel the devastation of economic loss and the devastation of a loss of job and the devastation of life. Listen, this COVID-19 plague doesn't go away just like any plague in the Bible. And they don't go away until people start to feel the loss. And it says that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. He prayed, asking for help, but he didn't pray, repenting of his sins. And then in verse 14, we read, And the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be condemned. What a burden. They were bowing under the burden. They were weeping in the burden. There were losses through the burden. They were trying to find shelter and security during the burden. They found none. They tried to pray 
but their prayer was not heard. Their world was falling apart. Listen, we see the punishment, we see the pain, but I see people here. I don't just see a nation, I see people here. And I think this morning there are two kinds of people in our world that we have right now. I think there are two kinds of burdens I see for the people. One, I see the burden of the saints. A saint is a saved man. A saint is a person who's born again. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've, been, you've accepted Christ, you've repented of your sins, and you've received Christ, you became at that moment a saint of God. All the word saint means is you are set apart unto God. You belong to God. You're God's chosen possession. But I want to tell you, when you get saved, that doesn't mean your burdens go away. And I want to tell you, when you get saved, that doesn't mean the burdens won't come. The burden of a saint is a trial, a testing, a difficulty that we're going through. The burden of a saint is a test of your faith. If you've lost your job, my good friends, the Mercado family and the Dobke family, who've lost a mother, the King family, which has lost Mrs. Ermgard Moore in the midst of this, that hurts. There's an emptiness there. That's a trial. That's a burden. If you're going through a health trial, many in our church are. Cancer, surgeries. If you've had rejection during this time, you're going through a family crisis, you're running short on money, that's a burden. There's a burden of the saint. There's a burden of the sinner. Sinner is one who's not saved. The burden of the sinner is much heavier because his prayer is not reaching to heaven. Because before God's going to hear that prayer, the first prayer God wants to hear, Lord, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. His burden is much heavier because he might be living with sins that are unforgiven. His burden is heavier because he has pride that he won't let go of because that's what's happened to Moab. Moab had every opportunity to turn to God, but the Bible says he is very proud. The burden is heavier because he's only thinking about right now and he's not thinking about eternity. The burden is heavier because he's not saved. The burden of Moab. We see the source of Moab's burden the suffering of Moab's burden, but I have good news for you this morning. By the way, aren't you glad that God's word is good news? Amen. Aren't you glad that God's word gives joy? Aren't you glad this morning it gives rejoicing? That's why Jeremiah said, thy word was found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I want to tell you this morning, God's word has an answer. Listen, this morning, I want you to see the salvation for every burden. I want you to see the salvation for every burden. Now go with me to chapter 16. In chapter 16, I don't have time to read it. But we have a remarkable statement here. It starts off by saying, Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the lamb, from Selah to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. And what's happening here is, in chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, we see God's merciful hand being extended to Moab, believe it or not. And there was a time when Moab was under tribute to Israel. In fact, under King Ahab, who was not a good king, they were under tribute. And they would send hundreds of thousands of lamb 
because Moab was great because of the mountainous areas. They were great sheep herders. They were known for sending hundreds of thousands of lambs per year as a tribute payment to Israel. But there came a time in 1 King, 2 Kings chapter 3, under King Misha of Moab, they stopped sending it. They said, we're not going to send this anymore. We're going to stop because Ahab had, basically Ahab had died and his son had become king. They said, well, we're not going to send this tribute anymore. And so they went back their old ways. They started to oppress Israel. And as we read the context here, verses 1 to 5, God was basically telling them, hey, listen, you need to, you need to stop. You need to, you need to do a few things. And one of them, he said, start sending a lamb back to the ruler. In other words, he's saying, I want you to send the lamb. I want you to send the lamb as a, tribu- as a, as a token of tribute back to the king of Judah, back to Israel. Send it to the king of that time to show your, your submission to him. Show that you're in submission to God. And he says, then as you look at all the people that you hurt, Bring them under your shelter. That's what he's talking about there in verse 4. He says, let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be a cover to them from the face of spoiler. He says, in other words, instead of being adversarial to them, be a friend to them. Instead of being adversarial, why don't you come alongside and be someone who helps them? And he tells them that, uh, he says, listen, verse 3, what I want you to do is take counsel of me and execute judgment and make thy shadow as the night as the midst of this noonday. He says, another, instead of being a curse, be a blessing. Instead of being hard on people, being, be kind to people. He says, I want you to change your ways. And then he tells them something very interesting in verse 5. He tells them, send a lamb to the ruler. Be a blessing to Israel. Take counsel of me. Let your influence be one that's a shadow. Let it be a shade to people, not a, not a hindrance to things. He said, take counsel, execute judgment. Execute judgment basically saying, get rid of your worship of Chemosh. And in verse 5, he tells them something interesting. Now bear in mind, this is all prophetical nature. In verse 5, he tells them, I want you to know there's a greater king coming. I realize that you've watched these kings fail. And you've got to remember when this is written. King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, had just died because when Isaiah 14 finishes, we read at the end of Isaiah 14, the king Ahaz had died. And his son Hezekiah would take the throne. And so in the interim there, before Hezekiah takes the throne, we see here that they're thinking about, now, we have a failed king here. And they're thinking, wait a minute, God's saying, wait a minute, I know that you know there's a failed king, but notice verse 5. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. He says, listen, you've had a failed king, but I want to tell you about a forever king. You've had a king that was carnal, but I want to tell you about a king who's, who's Christ. I want to tell you about a king who's almighty, a king who's everlasting, a king who will never fail you, a king of mercy. Listen, you're under judgment now, but you can have the mercies of God. So God was extending mercy to Moab. Quickly this morning, notice the salvation of the Lord. First, we see God's lessons. First, we see God's lessons. I think for God's people, first of all, there's two very simple lessons. I think lesson number one is burdens will result in weeping. We're going to shed some tears. Now, we're going to have weeping in this life. We're going to have a lot of heavy tears. The burdens and trials will cause us to weep. But it reminds you of Psalms 30, verse 5. It promises, weeping will endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And it reminds you tonight that this morning, as you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, you might want to go in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. And Jesus makes an invitation. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's talking to people who have a burden. 
He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Let's exchange the burden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I just want to say this morning, if you're under heavy burden right now, and I know many of us are, you may have weeped this night, but there's joy in the morning. There's joy in Jesus Christ. Why don't you trade places and say with God, God, I just want Jesus to take my yoke. I'm going to cast my burden upon the Lord. I think there's a second lesson for God's people. We must, there will be weeping in our life, but I want you to notice the second one that we, we need to watch for here. We must be very careful during this season of trial that we're in that we do not become indifferent. God's people must understand. So listen, this morning, you're watching my live stream. I pray our numbers today are just as strong as the first Sunday we had to live stream the services. And I hope the trend is not, it's going to decrease and decline. And some of you become universal church in your mindset and decide, I don't want to hear the preacher today. I'm going to go click on somebody else who's more popular. And let me say today, don't view live stream as a novelty. See live stream preaching as a necessity. And ask God to work in your heart that we realize during this time of interruption, this is not a novelty. This is a necessity that we hear the preaching of God's word. But I want to warn you something else. We're getting used to this phrase, social distancing. And in the midst of social distancing, there's going to be more suspicion. There's going to be more hesitancy. There's going to be more of an attitude, I don't want to get around you. And some of us are so bent out of shape that we are going to be very critical and find judgment with other people. And I want to remind you that God is giving this message here to a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah is getting a, a foreshadowing of judgment on this nation. He's seeing their burden. And here's Isaiah's response, which should be your response and mine. In verse 5 of chapter 15, my heart shall cry out for Moab. In chapter 16, verse 11, wherefore my bowels shall sound like a harp for Moab. In the midst of all this for God's people, don't let your heart become indifferent. Have a heart of compassion for sinners. Have a heart of compassion for souls. Have a heart of compassion for those who are suffering under a burden right now. There are less, there's God's lesson. Secondly, would you notice God's law? Notice chapter 16, verse 14. But now the Lord has spoken. The revelation given to Isaiah here is thus saith the Lord. The word of God is thus saith the Lord. It's telling us what God, what his mind is on the matter, his heart on the matter. And I remind you that God's law tells us the path we're to walk in. And when we stray off that path, we've broken the law. God shows us under his law that we're under the condemnation of sin. That's what happens. Every sin has a consequence. The wages of sin is death. And so we see God's law. God's law defines to us what is truth. Truth is absolute. 
God defines for us what is righteous. God is righteous. Jesus is righteous. God's law defines us what is moral perfection. God is moral perfection. You and I are not morally perfect. God's law tells us that all are under sin. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. Now, But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be condemned. Can I tell you today, listen, you need to take very seriously the fact that every sin has a consequences, and that the wages of sin is death, and that today, if you're not saved, listen, you're under that consequence. If you were to die right now, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Because if you're not, you're under sin's condemnation. There's God's lessons. There's God's law. But we see God's love. Notice in chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, we see God's love all over this. God loves every sinner. Look what he says here. And in mercy shall the throne be established. He's telling them, verse 16, I'm going to tell you how you can get out of this mess. God loves every sinner. And I want to tell you today, I may sound like God. God is angry with America and all that. I want to tell you, God had to send this, allow this plague to come. But God loves, still loves America, and God loves the world, and God loves every country of this world, and God loves you, and God loves me, and God loves every sinner. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, but God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's not willing that any should perish. While you're watching my live stream or somebody you know that you've invited to join us today, I want you to know God loves you. God loves you so much. He wants you to get saved today. God loves you so much. He doesn't want you to be under that burden anymore. He invites you to come to him and give him your burden. But notice chapter 16, verse 1, we see God's lesson. And we see God's law. And we see God's love. But I got good news for you. Notice in chapter 16, verse 1, we see God's lamb. We see God's lamb. You see, Moab was told, you need to go back and send a lamb as a tribute. Listen, Moab for many years sent a lamb as a lamb, hundreds of thousands of lambs, as tributes to Israel. But it never paid their debt in full. It never satisfied the demands of Israel. I'm thankful to tell you there's a greater lamb than this lamb. There's a greater lamb with a capital L, and that's the lamb of God for sinners slain. That's the lamb who's called Jesus Christ. The Bible says he's the lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. He's the lamb that in heaven will cry out, worthy is the lamb. He's a perfect lamb. He's a lamb who gave his life as a perfect sacrifice for every sinner. And has not sent you a lamb to the ruler. It was a lamb that was sent for the world. It was a lamb that died for the world. Listen, when lamb sacrifices started, when it started with Abel, it was one lamb for every man. When a lamb was killed in Exodus chapter 12, it was one lamb for every household. When the tabernacle was constructed, God instituted the Passover, the feast of Passover and the Day of Atonement. It was one lamb for every nation. One lamb for every man, one lamb for every household, one lamb for every nation. But I'm going to tell you, when Jesus came, it was one lamb for the entire world. We see God's lamb. He's the lamb who died for your sins. He's the lamb that was crucified and shed his righteous blood. That his blood was the payment price for your sin. Listen, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no covering. There's no atonement for your sins and mine. Listen, Jesus Christ had to die a bloody death for you and I. He died for your sins and offers you the gift of eternal life that you can be set free. 
Moab was proud. Right after verse 1 and through 5, we get to verse 6. It says, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He's very proud. When you're proud, you reject God's plan of salvation. Don't be proud and tell God no. Don't be proud and reject the free gift of eternal life. Don't be proud and say, God, I don't need your forgiveness. Don't be proud and say, I don't need the lamb. Listen, God sent us his lamb, and as we close, notice we see God's lane. God's lessons, God's law, God's love, God's lamb, God's lane. There's only one road. It's a narrow road. There's only one lane. All roads don't lead to Jesus. He is the road. He is the lane. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. You must come by way of God's lane. You must walk that pathway through Jesus. He's the only way. He's the truth. He's the only source of life. Your burden can be lifted today. Christ can satisfy your needs. This week I read a story that, a local story here that is a story of victory, encouragement. Adrian and Monica Arima of Palo Alto went on a trip of a lifetime, many other people. They took a trip, left the Bay Area to go to Egypt, and among all the things they did, they went on a Nile cruise and things of that nature. But when they returned, they were diagnosed with COVID-19 symptoms. Monica more severely than Adrian. She was hospitalized from March 3rd on. And just a few days ago, while being hospitalized with pneumonia, being touch and go with COVID-19, they asked her, would you be interested in being part of our clinical trial test for a particular medication that's been used in, for other diseases but has not been very effective? And she said, I've got nothing to lose. I'll do so. And her husband was familiar with it because he had worked for, that, he had worked for this company that had produced that, 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 uh, that medication. And after five days of being on that medication, She started to get well. They interviewed her on the news this week, both, both of them. She said, well, we're still under quarantine right now, but I'm doing so much better. I think my worst days are over. You know what? I'm happy for that couple because they were under great burden. The uncertainty, the horror, the nightmare of contracting COVID-19 on a vacation of all things. But the good news is they found hope. There's a greater hope than whatever vaccine or medicine is discovered that will treat this, this terrible, terrible disease. 
And that cure is Jesus Christ. That solution for your life, that remedy for your soul, is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ.